friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. We're so glad you're here this morning. Welcome to Skyline. Uh, we have a special treat this morning. Our friends, Drew and Mary Caldwell, and their family are in town from Beirut, Lebanon. Um, we've known them for a few years, and they've really made a, a big impact on our church and on our family specifically, and have just become really precious friends. So we've invited them today to share their story about what God's doing there. And um, so I'm going to invite Drew up. And uh, I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to let it rip. It's going to be awesome. Okay, so Jesus, we just love you. We thank you so much for the Caldwells. We thank you for the calling on their life, and Lord, their radical obedience to you. And so we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill Drew right now, and that you would speak through him to us, to our family, this church, and over this city about what you're doing in these days, and that we too would obey in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Jonathan. Good morning. Uh, it's really, it's sweet, it's fun for, for our family to be with you all this morning. Uh, as Jonathan said, just over the last few years, we've felt such a deep friendship with this community, and it's blessed us tremendously on so many ways. We feel so championed and carried by you all, and just pray that, you know, in, in Romans, Paul uh, talks to the church in Rome, and he talks about this mutual impartation that he longs to have when he's with them, where he gets to bring what God's doing in his life, and he gets to receive from what God's doing in their lives. And, uh, and we believe in that. We love to be connected uh, to the church and to be able to come and to, to bear witness to what God's doing in our world and to experience and hear what God's doing in your world. And so it is a, it's, a, it's a real joy to be with you all. Uh, a little bit before I dive into kind of the, the thing I, I f- want to share with you all specifically this morning, uh, I just want to give a little bit of context for Mary and I and our family and what we've been up to the last 12 years, since you've been wondering. Uh, so 12 years ago, we left. We, we were living at the time. We're from Oklahoma originally. We, we left Norman, Oklahoma. We moved uh, to the Middle East. Uh, we have three kids three daughters, Layla, age 11, Sophia, age 9, and Hope, age 7, uh, that were all born over there. We've, we've raised our family. We've done team for years with a group of close friends. And uh, the, the vision, the call that led us to the Middle East, and that can we continue to, uh, to kind of surrender our lives to, to see happen, is uh, this, this call to see a movement in the Middle East, a spiritual awakening in our generation, uh, in the Muslim world. And it's happening. The beautiful thing is it's happening. Uh, when, we, when we left 12 years ago, uh, we felt like God gave us faith to believe that, uh, that the book of Acts was being written again in the Middle East, uh, that people were being called from all types of backgrounds to become a new family in Jesus, that leaders were being raised up uh, to, to plant churches from town to town and village to village. And uh, for, when we left, that was just sort of 
a gift of faith that God gave us to, to be able to envision that happening and this expectation that that was what God was up to. But as we've lived into that calling uh, over the years, we've begun to see it take shape in beautiful ways. And so that's, that's what we do. We, uh, we, are, we prayerfully seek to be present in the community and to participate in what God's already doing to see leaders raised up, local leaders, to see communities planted wherever uh, in, through whatever doors God opens for us. So traditionally, I'm a teacher. I do a lot of work with, with young people uh, in school. And Mary's a nurse, and she's mobilized mobile clinics, uh, primarily working with Syrian refugees over the last few years. Um, so one of the stories that, that you all have been connected with, and I would just love to say, mention briefly, uh, is that at, through Mary's work initially with doing these mobile clinics, uh, about eight years ago, we met a, a Syrian refugee woman uh, named Nahla, and in, as, as we were doing a mobile clinic, she just, she experienced a sense of God's presence and asked us, man, why are you guys different? And so our teammate Melanie began to meet with her every week and just read the Bible and disciple her. And through that process, Nahla began to fall in love with Jesus. God began to show up in dreams and to lead her. Uh, he gave her a dream at one point, or he gave our, our teammate a dream about widows. And so her and Nahla immediately said, this is from God. God's asking me to reach the widows around me. So she began to find camps of widows, and we start, helped, helped her start a sewing business where she's training them. So through, as this thing began to unfold, now I'm, I'm fast-forwarding through eight years so I can tell you what happened in the last two years, but um, this network of, of widows began to multiply into these little communities of faith, and as things began to shift and the situation got worse in Lebanon and better in Syria, relatively, uh, some of those widows began to say, maybe it's time to go back. And so you all, as a community, helped us bless and train and launch teams of refugee widows who had come to know Jesus back into Syria. And this summer, Nahla has been visiting them, going village to village, visiting these little communities of Jesus followers, encouraging them just like the book of Acts. Um, and so it's, it's, that's been a, a kind of one stream of what we, we believe God is doing in the Middle East uh, and around the world. And it's something that we've been a part of and that you all have been a part of. So I want to share specifically, though, this morning uh, about the last two years and some specific things that we've gotten to see and the ways it's sort of shaped us. Uh, but our very normal life of teaching in the school and going to the camps began to get interrupted uh, October 17th, 2019, so a little less than two years ago, uh, when a revolution erupted on the streets of Beirut. So this scene is, is about a mile from our house. We could walk to it. Um, and... Essentially, after years of corruption, government, uh, mismanagement, people, you know, Lebanese people feeling like their, their, their hard work, their life savings was being stolen by government officials, a revolution erupted. Uh, and it was this beautiful display of unity. Uh, it was this expression of, of a desire to see a country transformed that actually caused, allowed its citizens to flourish. And it was this, uh, if, if you were there on the streets, it was like a festival. I mean, kids were getting their faces painted type of thing. It was uh, not the revolution that, you know, you, you would imagine in the Middle East. It was beautiful. Day and night, 24 hours a day, we, got, we were able to set up a prayer tent on the streets in the revolution uh, where people from all backgrounds, Christian, Muslim, would come and we would say, hey, we just... We believe that, that, you know, this is a time to pray for the future of your country. What are your prayers for Lebanon? And as people would write out those prayers and share them, we would say, well, how is your heart in all this? How can we pray for you? And it was these beautiful moments of, of you know, of Muslim women crying as they wrote out prayers for their village. And uh, it, was this very, it was this time of incredible optimism. Uh, 
that optimism was short-lived. The government elites uh, were not so into the festival uh, and were not particularly interested in retiring early. The, uh, the, they began to use kind of street-level thuggery to, uh, to turn the protests violent, to introduce violent elements into it. Uh, pretty soon, those festival streets were the, you know, the exact same streets were the sites of tear gas and, uh, and, and you know, battles between security forces. In the meantime, Lebanon began to plunge into a financial meltdown. So cu currently, if you're following it, Carnegie Mellon calls it one of the top three economic collapses in modern economic history. Uh, uh, banks, people lost their life savings. Banks basically shut everyone's accounts and their banks turned into sort of fortresses. Uh, the uh, people's life savings began to devalue as the currency collapsed so that my counterparts at the school who were previously making $2,000 a month were suddenly making $100 a month based on the collapse of the currency. Uh, and so living conditions began to just deteriorate rapidly. Huge swaths of the population fell below the poverty line. And, uh, and op that optimism of the revolution quickly turned uh, into, as you might expect, pessimism. A pandemic started. I think you heard about that one. Uh, and in the midst of, a to of total economic stagnation, people were forced into their homes with no social safety nets. And uh, it became a very dire, anxious environment to live in. And that builds up to August 4th, 2020. Uh, August 4th, 2020, 2,780 tons of ammonium nitrate, the material used in the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, detonated at the port of Beirut, two miles from our house, where we were standing in our living room. We were having a, a, a home group meeting. Uh, our, our, one of our home group members shouted, it's an earthquake because everything was shaking on the walls. And then the, ex the explosion happened. Uh, that, that was just like the pre-tremors of the, it was rumbling through the ground. When the explosion happened, glass shattered in our building. One of our neighbors had to be rushed to the hospital, and we were two miles away. Uh, there, were, there were a million people within the radius of this blast, and the devastation was just unthinkable. And it, for most of our Lebanese friends, they would say something in them died that day, uh, that something in them was lost. And, uh, and, the, and you know, some of the most iconic spots, including our own family's favorite restaurant in Beirut, were completely decimated in the blast. So right on the back of this moment, you know, uh, where, where optimism turned pessimism was now complete despair, we actually, uh, had, we, were, we actually had plans to leave Lebanon to go to a family wedding. So we came back for a month to, for Mary's brother's wedding. We actually saw you guys. That was a year ago. And, um, and it was, as we were building up to go back, Mary and I had this honest moment. You know, we're... we're we're, we're Mary and I by nature, we are optimistic, we're resilient people, we're persevering, we're upbeat, and we had this honest moment where we had to look at each other and say, something in me doesn't want to go back. I don't want to get on the plane right now. This was, we'd lived there for 11 years, you know, our kids were born there, our life, our calling, our career, our ministry was there, and we just had to, to admit it, like, this is really hard right now, and there's something in me that doesn't want to do it. And that was like, for Mary and I to say it to each other was like, you know, a, a red alarm for us, like, uh, you know, and more than the check engine light, you know, it's something dire. So we reached out to a, to a friend of ours who's a therapist, he's a trauma therapist, he counsels missionaries on the field, and we, we got on Zoom with him, and we just began to talk through, like, he began to ask us questions, we began to explore those emotions, you know, what in us felt like it couldn't get on that plane. What did we lose in this moment? 
And as we began to talk it through, the way I would describe it is I, I came to this realization that what I lost was my optimism. What I lost was my ability to look on the bright side of things. And what I realized was that that, 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 was, not, that's, that was not some, you know, because something had gone wrong. It was just an honest recognition. I, you know, in the past, Mary and I, people would say, why do you live here? And we could say lovely things about Lebanon. We love the food. The people are so friendly, you know. We'd look on the bright side. But we couldn't get on the plane if our fuel was optimism. But the beautiful thing is we began to, you know, as he, he began to ask his questions and, and prayerfully lead us through this reflection. We realized that as Christians, we're not supposed to run on optimism. That we have something deeper that we can reach into. So imagine the classic definition of optimism, right? I'm holding a cup, right? The water's up to here. The optimist says the cup is half full, right? And, but the pessimist says the cup is half empty, right? So there's half water. It just depends on are you looking on the, what side of the cup are you looking at, right? It's an, it's an issue of perspective. But what happens if I am literally holding an empty cup, Right? Optimism in the face of an empty cup sounds a little bit like denial. And, and that's the, the place we were in danger. If we were to get back on that plane with the same attitude we'd always had, we'd be trying to dismiss or deny the empty cup we were holding, the grief we were carrying, the loss and confusion we had. But the beautiful thing is God didn't ask us to be optimistic. He gave us something better. He gave us hope. Hope isn't about how you look at the glass. Hope can hold an empty cup and can grieve it. Hope can say, I hate that this cup is empty. But hope can say, but you know what? The empty cup, it's not the end of the story. I know where the water comes from. And this cup will be filled again. For the person who hopes, they're not looking for good news inside the cup. They're looking for good news beyond the cup. And we had to find that thing that said, you know what? It's okay if Lebanon's a hard place to live. Our hope wasn't in Lebanon. It's okay if Lebanon is in a dark and broken place and, that it need, and it's something that we grieve and we feel the loss of. Because we can grieve this empty cup and we can know that this story is not over because this story belongs to God. What I want to share uh, with, the, with my time with you this morning is, this, is our perspective about hope and the, the, the reality that, you know, even now, like if you follow the news right now, the situation in Lebanon is worse today than it was the day after the explosion. It is, there are, it is getting worse, and we're going to have to do the same hard work to get back on that plane. But... What I, so if you were to say, like, what's the solution for Lebanon? I don't have a solution. But here's what I can say. I, I know what God is doing. I don't know what the solution is for Lebanon, but I know what, who God is, and I know what he's doing. He is showing up in the lives of people in crisis. He is transforming their story into stories of hope. So I want to share some of those stories this morning. Uh, this young man, his name is Muhammad, and uh, the, the one next to me right there, 
And uh, he, is a, he is a very passionate, lovely young man. He was my student 10 years ago. Uh, Muhammad, I shared, I shared a story about him two years ago, actually, about how he came to faith uh, through a very supernatural, um, you know, encounter with the Holy Spirit. Um, but had, had, over the course of the last year, had really struggled. You know, not only was his country in crisis, but he was in a personal crisis about how he, uh, as a man in a Muslim community, is a, becomes a follower of Jesus. And he had actually told me, look, I don't know if I can do this. I think I'm just going to go back to Islam. Um, and so we continued to love on him throughout the year and to, to, you know, go and visit him and to have him over at our house. And uh, we just had a lot of faith for this young man. After the explosion, when we flew back to Lebanon, uh, we had some friends visiting us. And these, these friends of ours, their name is Chris and Christine and Craig. And they are just very trusted, uh, we would call them trusted prophetic voices. So they have a very strong gift to hear the voice of God for others to encourage and strengthen them. And Mary had this brilliant idea, you know, in this crisis, in this, you know, crazy time, we're watching these young people we've worked with for years. Their lives are getting turned upside down. Their future plans are, are kind of just dissipating before their eyes. Wouldn't it be amazing if they got some words from, some prophetic words from God to sort of anchor them in the midst of this chaos? And so we invited our, our friends, Chris and Craig, and we invited a bunch of our young people, and they all came. <laughs> it was a weird invitation, but all of them showed up. That basically we're just going to spend time praying. We know this is a time of crisis. But we believe that, that God wants to speak and give you guys hope in this, this time of, of, you know, of uncertainty. And so one of the guys who came over was Muhammad. And he wasn't even like, he was like not walking with Jesus. He had, you know, basically declared, I'm going back to Islam. But he showed up for this meeting nonetheless. And before the meeting, I introduced him to my friend Craig. And they're sitting on the balcony talking. And as they talk, Craig begins to get a sense from the Lord that, you know what Muhammad really needs? He needs the, to hear the blessing of a father. And, and Craig was picking up on something because Muhammad has a very broken relationship with his own dad. And so Craig just says, hey, Muhammad, if it's okay, I just want to pray a father's blessing over you. And so Muhammad says, sure. And Craig gets up and he puts his hands on Muhammad and he just speaks out. This very, it was nothing dramatic. He just was listening to, that, to God's leading. And he just says, you know, Muhammad, you are... God, God loves you. You are a delight. You are a blessing. You are a gift. And he speaks out these, these simple blessings. And he sits back, back down. And Muhammad's sitting there. I was, I was on, in the, on the balcony as well. And Muhammad's kind of tearing up. He goes, you know, I just feel. And then he stops. And he just begins to weep. Like weeping so loudly that Mary thought one of our kids had fallen off the you know, that type of weeping. Um, and he's, he's crying and crying. Uh, and as the night went on, they began, each person began to stand up and they just began to speak these, these not, they, it wasn't like dramatic, let me tell you your future stuff. It was these simple words that made everyone feel, hey, in the midst of all this chaos, I'm known by name. God knows me. He sees me. He loves me. He still has a plan for me, even though I can't see it. And my life is upside down. And every single one of them that got up for prayer, it was like 10 of them, every single one of them just cried and cried as they heard the words of the Father spoken over them. And two of them, actually, Muhammad and another girl, just out of this simple gathering, gave their lives back to Jesus. And this picture is actually two months later at his baptism. And it was so powerful to see that in a time of crisis, how badly we need to hear God speak to us personally. 
we need to be oriented around the fact that, because I think the reason is that when crisis happens, we feel overlooked, forgotten, thrown aside. We feel like we feel abandoned. And it's in that moment that God wants to say, I see you. I'm with you. I want, I'm, 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 I'm still faithful to you and your story's not over yet. We need that connection. And we as the church, as the people of God, need to be the ones who can carry that voice into the world because the people around us are in crisis. So it reminds me of this story from the Bible in Genesis, I think chapter 29. And it's the story of Jacob. Jacob, uh, you know, He's, he's, he has a lot of family drama <laughs> to the extent that he leaves his home because his brother is plotting to kill him. So that's a crisis, you know, of a different nature, right? He knows his brother is actively planning to murder him. So his mom is basically like, run away. Uh, and so he flees out into the wilderness. I mean, can you imagine how disorienting this would be? Can you imagine how you would feel like your story is over? You've been cast aside. You're, you're unseen, you're unvaluable, right? Your own family's just saying, get out of here, run, run. It's like Simba, you know? Um, never come back. Uh, so Jacob just runs out in the wilderness, but it's in the wilderness, in his time of crisis, that Jacob hears the voice of, the voice of God for the first time. And God speaks to Jacob. And he has this whole dream, and God says to him, Jacob, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Well, Jacob would have known that already. And then he says, and I make my covenant with you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will fulfill all my good promises for your life. Suddenly, Jacob gets written into the story. Jacob is seen and known. He has a place in the story of God. And uh, when Jacob wakes up the next morning, he has this beautiful declaration. He says, surely God was in this place, and I didn't know it. I think that's what God wants us all to experience in our times of crisis. That crisis launches us out of our place of security, our place of comfort. But it's in that place that God wants to, to speak to us, that God wants to root us in his story so that we can say, wow, God is in this place of crisis, and I didn't know it. God is in this place of loss, and I didn't know it. Um, what's beautiful about our the, the, our hope as, as followers of Jesus is that our hope is found in a story. Our hope is found in this ancient story that, that speaks through history, that speaks forward, right, into the, the new heavens and the new earth, into this renewed humanity before the face of God. And we, are, while, while the world around us rides these crazy waves of uncertainty— we get to find our feet on the solid ground of a story that started long before us, but in which we have been called by name. And we then, that story lifts us up out of our pain and our, and our personal loss and writes us, rewrites our own story as part of this new beautiful story that God is writing. Uh, Mary, I'd love for you to come up and share a bit of your perspective 
Um, yeah, so I get to share a little bit. Drew did the lead up. Some of you have heard this. Um, but when we went back last uh, fall, uh, I was so impacted by what happened in the explosion and asking the Lord, what can we do, you know, to meet this need? What, what's, a, what's a practical way we can help? Felt like I was supposed to just pray and do some prayer walking in the different neighborhoods that were um, really affected by the blast. And um, Zainab was with me. So Zainab's a Muslim background believer, but she's eager to serve, you you know, others and serve his kingdom. So we're walking the streets and we end up kind of finding a neighborhood that was right next to the port. It's mostly Muslim. Um, it's kind of a rough neighborhood. Um, and we start going in home to home asking what's been, like what has already been helped with doing a needs assessment. And then every time we go in, every time we interact with people, we're trying to make it a spiritual interaction. So pray over them, share a parable, share a story about Jesus, um, and just, you know, try and interact with uh, them in a way that brings his kingdom. So in this process, we would send out an email. Some of you guys generously gave to us, and we were able to help people get a major appliance that had been in the blast, had been lost. So a refrigerator or an oven. Um, and as we kind of do, do this whole process of letting people in, um, we start asking, what are some other needs in the community? Like, what are some of the deep needs that the community needs and, uh, or that we can help? And the thing that keeps coming up is trauma. So the, the Syrians and Lebanese in this neighborhood keep saying trauma. Um, and so we reach out to someone that is, has done this cool program of Bible studies that in incorporate trauma healing. And so it's based out of the Bible, but it's um, got some trauma healing activities. And we invite women and men, but mostly women showed up. <laughs> we invite a bunch of people into these uh, it's like a nine week or seven to nine week process. And I um, have done a lot of things with Syrians in the past. And a lot of times when you invite them to something, they think there's money or aid. So a lot of them come the first couple of times. And then usually it trickles down to like the faithful five. And for us, it's like, if we have faithful five, that's awesome because they can get healed and then be agents of healing and change for their neighbors, Right. So when, when I opened up this invitation and I had a team with me of these Lebanese young people who also got trained, um, I said, okay, I think we'll have a lot the first week, but then it'll trickle down. Well, week after week, the women keep coming. So after like nine weeks of walking together, it's like 33, 34 women that actually go through it. And, um, and so, and they're, and I'm watching week by week as they're getting changed by the stories of Jesus and by these healing activities. So one of the women um, is named Fatima and she uh, is very quiet. She's been really traumatized. She's a Syrian refugee. She had a horrible experience in Syria and then coming into Lebanon was really difficult. And then the blast, she's like just completely not functional. She's having nightmares. She's having insomnia. She can't eat. Her kids are having nightmares. If they hear a loud noise, it's, it triggers them. So she's just completely almost non-functioning. And in this group of 40 women that are going through the trauma Bible studies, um, Fatima would be someone that I would never have like picked as a leader, right? I would have totally overlooked her. She's not super dynamic. She seems really shut down. But as we're going through these, these weeks together, I'm watching her lean in. And when we do stories and we'd share things about Jesus, she's crying, she's listening, she's going home, she's sharing with others. Um, and so it was this really, really beautiful thing to kind of watch her start I would say her heart start melting and getting healed. Like there was this, this kind of thaw from this, you know, iceberg. And so 
at the end of the um, time with the women, uh, two things happens. One is a ton of their neighbors are asking, well, can we also do these trauma groups? And so instead of just continuing on, I said, let's pick women that were really changed, that really impacted, that this kind of was transforming them and have them help lead it with us. So I asked Fatima to be one of the leaders. And so she got to be on our team. So she'd come early and we'd pray over the women. She'd stay late. We'd debrief our time, you know, the different groups. At the same time, the women who had just gone through this, they were like, we can't just end with us. So we said, okay, we won't have, we don't have to end. What would we, what, we could do a forgiveness story set, like some stories around forgiveness. And then someone raised their hand. They're like, can we just do stories about Jesus? And we're like, yes, you can also do stories about Jesus. So we had two different groups, and Fatima was in the forgiveness group. Um, so Fatima, one of the first couple, first weeks we're doing, we're talking about forgiveness. And we're, it's one of the stories we're starting with is the prodigal son, where there's the two sons, right? And we're kind of discussing it, and there's eight Syrians in the room. And Fatima says, look, here's the deal. I know that I should forgive people, but I can't. Like, this is what happened to me. Um, I'm from Idlib. She's from an area in Syria that was um, the rebels, like the ones against the, um, the regime. And she says, I'm from Idlib, and my cousin that I grew up with, we were best friends. We were in each other's weddings. We were, we were best, best friends. She moved to Damascus. And um, she came back a couple years later, you know, during the war, stayed for three weeks. We had a great time. She visited all of our families. And then she went back to Damascus. And 13 days after her visit, any of my family members that were against the regime were bombed and killed, including my father. And we found out that my cousin was a spy and got paid to turn us in. So no matter what, I can't forgive her. And so the whole room's kind of like, ooh, you know? And so I'm like, yeah, that's really hard. That is really hard. And you know what? It's a long journey. And so I just sort of made space for like how hard and long it is, okay? Knowing that we're going through the scriptures together so I can trust the Holy Spirit that he's gonna anchor us in these, in these stories. The next week, Fatima comes and we're talking and she says, you guys aren't gonna believe what happened. She's like, the only way I can explain it, it's like the Spirit of God came over me and told me I have to forgive my cousin. And so, look, she's tried to reach out to me five different times over the years. I always block her number, but I find her number. And I text her and I say, this is Fatima. You know what happened in the past. Um, just forget about it. And so immediately my cousin calls me and says, is this Fatima Hamdan? And I said, yes. She says, are you saying you forgive me? And Fatima said, yes, I forgive you. And then the, the cousin just starts weeping. And she says, you have no idea how ashamed I've been. You have no idea how much I regret what I did. And like, how can you forgive me? How can you, how can you do this? And Fatima says, it's not actually because you deserve it. And it's not because you actually asked for it. It's because God's doing a work in my heart. And he's teaching me how to forgive. And it's changing my life. And so then the, the uh, cousin says, well, can you teach me about this? <laughs> like, I need this. Um, and so Fatima is, shares this in a group of eight women. And the week before, she told the story and we were all, you know. And so the room just kind of gasps. And it was this really powerful moment. And then I hear the women all start kind of muttering. And one says, I need to talk to my husband. And the other one says, I need to talk to my mother-in-law. And then the other one says, I need to talk to my cousin. And really that testimony of forgiveness just like released this like faith and desire to get free. And Fatima's talking about it. It was, it was so powerful. Um, 
And so here Fatima is, she's leading new women. She's testifying to new women. She actually asked me if she could gather her neighbors and take them through the trauma courses. So she's doing it on her own. And every time I hang out with her, she's got another testimony of someone she's talked to, someone she's prayed for. Um, She said, this is a really beautiful uh, part of her story. She says, it's like I was asleep and I came alive. It's like I woke up. And now even the very small things we're doing in these trauma healing sessions, I'm using them with my kids. And I was so traumatized. All I was thinking about was the food I was cooking or if I had oil or if I had this. And now my kids come home from school and I ask them the simple questions. How are you? How does that make you feel? What's the hardest part? And it's changing my relationship with my children. And so that, and that to me is so powerful that it's changing her relationship with her, with her family, with her cousin. Her husband was freaking out that she forgave the cousin and, and was bewildered, like couldn't believe that she did this. And then here she is gathering women. And so even like Drew's saying, the idea of like that in the middle of crisis, that God is choosing people like Fatima to heal, to restore, to set free from their pain, and that they can do that to the ones around them has been such an amazing thing to be a part of. It's awesome. And what I really, one of the things I just just think is just so incredible, you know, you have uh, a woman who, I mean, has gone from losing family members, fleeing a bombed out region of Syria, to to coming as a refugee to scrape by in Lebanon, and then to live across the street from the port, and for her to carry a vision of hope for others, only Jesus can do this. This is our story. And, and, and it's, it's beautiful because even these trauma healing uh, meetings that, that Mary and her team do, they, they're so powerful and the women connect with them because they're rooted in the story of God, in the scriptures. And the very first lesson they do is this story of Joseph, about how Joseph was betrayed by brothers and thrown in a well and ended up in prison. Um, but, but Joseph, at the end of his journey, when he's standing before his brothers and they're, they're weeping and they're repenting, Joseph says... What you meant for evil, God used for good to say, and, and this is their kind of, their slogan they say uh, in these trauma healing groups, what the enemy meant for evil, God has used for good to save me and those around me. That, the, that, that something like the blast could be the thing that brings Mary and Fatima together. And now Fatima, her eyes are open and she is stepping into her calling and purpose for the first time in her life. This, uh, this guy's name is Jamal. Jamal uh, was, a, was a soldier in the Syrian war. He actually is a Palestinian refugee born in Syria. His family was displaced in 1948. He's, he's lived his whole life in Syria, but he's only given refugee status. He's not a citizen. It's not his country officially. He got recruited, though, with a regime when the war started, went into the camps and forced these men to fight for them. So he's fighting for someone else's country for eight years without leave. They would not release him from his service. Eight years of fighting in this horrific civil war, he had seen atrocities, and to to be honest, he had participated in atrocities. And eventually he reached the point where he said, I can't do this anymore, I have to get out. He he deserts the the Syrian army. He's captured, arrested, Uh, he's put in a military prison, three stories underground for three months where he's tortured, then released and told to go back to his post. He doesn't do it. He, he actually flees the country and he walks by foot over the mountains in the snow into Lebanon and starts living in refugee camps in Lebanon. 
he starts looking for odd jobs to save up enough money so that he can bring his wife and small, three small children, three, three daughters, to live with him in Lebanon. Can you imagine the state of his soul after all of that? And he's sitting there, you know, trying to find work. He's sitting one night at home. He's scrolling through his Facebook feed. And he sees an ad that says, would you like to know more about Jesus? Click here to learn more. Turns out there are people that click here. Uh, he sees the ad and says, I don't know anything about, well, sure, I don't know anything about Jesus. Clicks on the ad, and it just, all it does is it sends him a passage from the Gospels about Jesus, from stories we all would be familiar with. So he begins to read it, and it, something begins to happen inside of him. Once he finishes it, he requests another one and another one. He's just reading these stories of Jesus. And something in him begins to melt. He begins to feel this tenderness, this goodness, this love, this hope begin to well up in him. Eventually, he's clicking so much that the friends of ours who actually run this ad campaign are, reach out to him. And they're like, you seem very interested in this. Would you like someone to meet with you and, and talk to you more about it? He says, yes, please. So they, they ask him where he lives, and he lives one mile from my house. So within one month after the blast, you know, after we work through our stuff, we get back on that plane, we're saying, you know, God, this is an empty cup, but our hope's not in the cup. We get back on the plane. Within a month, I get a call from these friends. They say, this guy, Jamal, wants to meet with somebody. We meet up in this cafe. I'm sitting across from him. I am stunned at what he's telling me. And he gets to the end of his story. Tears are in his eyes. And, you know, I tell him, Jamal, I, I can't imagine what you've been through. I can't imagine what that must feel like. And he sits there and he goes, you know, to be honest, my whole life has been pain. But with Jesus, there's a beauty in my pain. My pain has a purpose. When we think about hope and the story of God, it's hard not to stop at this, this moment of the resurrection. The disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus. They thought, right, this is the story. This is the story of the kingdom. This is the story our ancestors have been waiting for. Let's leave everything and be a part of it. And they followed Jesus, and they reached this point in the road where they were disappointed with Jesus. Where following Jesus had led them to humiliation, uh, where, where it led, they, they had, you know, he had been arrested and tortured and crucified and killed. And they were disillusioned and disoriented, disappointed. That evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. A few days prior, when Jesus was being crucified, do you think they ever could have imagined a story so unthinkable and so glorious where those wounds would be the source of their joy? Don't you love the fact that the wounds of Jesus are not edited out of his resurrected body? They have been made new in the story of God. They have become a they have made him who he is, the gift that he is to us. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. This is from a few months ago, Jamal's baptism. Jamal 
as he began to, to discover his purpose, you know, the purpose of his wounds, he began to say, you know, I read about Peter. And, God, and Jesus called Peter and said, you know, Peter, I've called you to be a fisher of men. And Jamal said, Peter's like me. Do you think Jesus would, would use me? Do you think I could be a fisher of men? Jamal began sharing Jesus everywhere he went. He began leading people to faith uh, in his Palestinian camp where he lives. And, and it's a, an area that's controlled by Islamic militants. I can't even go in there. It's so bad. The, the, the police don't go in there. And Jamal's in that community leading people to faith. I said, Jamal, aren't you scared? And he goes, well, to be fair, I've been tortured for stupider things than this. I've got nothing to lose. Jamal has taken this unthinkable story of pain, this guy who's been a part of warfare and violence, and now he's the one God is using to, to give a story of hope and meaning to his people. And after months of following Jesus, he said, you know, I want to get baptized. I want, I want all in. And so we went up to this mountain river, and the old Jamal went down in the water. The, the, the soldier who fought, who participated in atrocities, who saw people tortured before his eyes and was tortured, that Jamal died in the river that day, and a new Jamal came out. A Jamal who's been written into a new story, an eternal story, who's been birthed into a new family. I don't know what the solution is for Lebanon, but I know what God is doing. God is showing up in the lives of people like Jamal, of people like Fatima, and he's transforming their stories from ashes to beauty. That is who he is. That is what he does. And his invitation to us is to find our place in that story. That we don't have to be shaken by the waves of chaos and anxiety that surround us. Uh, that we don't have to, you know, imbibe the stories of the media. We have a better story and an abiding one. I'll, I'll close with this exhortation. With the, with the, you know, the, the road, there's a story after the resurrection of the road to Emmaus in the Gospel of Luke. And it's just this incredible story. It's worth just meditating on over and over again. And basically, these disciples are wandering around discouraged and lost. They've lost the thread of the story. And they're just wandering around, like, in despair. And Jesus, this is after the resurrection, right? Jesus begins walking with them, saying, what's going on, guys? I just love it. Jesus shows up and starts asking questions. What's going on? Why so glum? And they said, man, have you been living under a rock? Doesn't everyone know? There was this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and we had put our hopes in him. And now we don't know what to do. Doesn't, didn't work out like we thought. We feel lost. And then Jesus, they sit down for a meal. And Jesus says, really, guys, are you that hard-hearted? Don't you know the story? Don't you know the story of God? that you're a part of. And, he, and it, says this, it says that he begins to retell them from the beginning through the scripture that the Messiah would have to suffer and die before entering into his glory. And then Jesus reveals himself to them and disappears. And they say this to one another. They said, were not our hearts burning within us when he told us the story? Were not our hearts burning burning within us. The fruit of hope restored is a burning heart. When you're a part of a story that, that is moving in the direction of the story of God, your heart will burn within you. It's become my new diagnostic, right? 
I, we, this is an ongoing process of discipleship, of, of, um, of self-awareness. My ongoing diagnostic of how I'm doing is how's my heart? Is it burning or am I disconnected? Have I, have I started living into a lesser story? Because we were made to burn for God. Our hearts were made to burn with a living hope that transforms our story so that we can begin to be a voice that speaks transformation into the lives of others. Let me pray for us. Yes, Lord, we thank you for the good news of the kingdom of God that that we've encountered in so many ways, the, the, the myriad ways you've spoken to each one in this room. And I just pray for all of us the grace of renewal in our hearts, that we would hear and receive and see the good news of the kingdom anew. I pray, I pray for everyone in this room who is holding an empty cup, that you would give them the space and the freedom to to call it like it is and to grieve that, but you would give them at the same time the safety and the the security to know that they are rooted in a story and that that cup is not the end of their story, that their story belongs to God. Holy Spirit, we ask for you to renew hope in us in the places we have lost track and that you would set our hearts afire with with longing to participate in the story of God in our day. In Jesus' name, amen.